0: My name is Victor Kubik, president of the United Church of God. Welcome to another episode of the Inside United podcast. Our guest today is Roy Holiday. Roy Holiday has retired from a long career as a pastor of congregations throughout the United States. He's been a regional pastor, a member of the Council of Elders, chairman of the Council of Elders, and also served as president of the United Church of God. I have known and worked with Roy Holiday off and on for several decades and consider him and his supportive wife, Norma, dear friends. Roy is one of the hardest workers that I have ever come in contact with. His dedication to whatever the project or challenge has been greatly appreciated, and I would say his greatest quality to me is seeing him. He has the heart of a pastor and truly a person who loves people. So welcome to Inside United, Roy.
1: Well, thank you, Victor. Uh It is a privilege to be on the podcast with you.
0: Well, Roy, it's just a real privilege, too, from my end to be able to have you here and to share some thoughts with you and to share them with the people that will be listening. Roy, please tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, where are you from?
1: I was born in Glasgow, Kentucky, with my twin sister, Roberta. When we were in the second grade, we moved to East Tennessee, and we lived there until i went to ambassador college i have four other siblings two brothers two sisters my parents were strong parents i always admired my father because he was such a hard worker much of his life he worked two jobs and i remember him getting up at five to six o'clock in the morning doing chores around the house that needed to be done, such as milking the cows, feeding the chickens, cutting wood, and then go out and work on the farm. Later in life, he got a job working at Southern Railroad. Mm-hmm. It was 1957 that we began to listen to the World Tomorrow broadcast. And we had had a house fire, everything in the house burned plus the house. And I can remember my mother, I I had skipped school that day, I wasn't feeling well and I was lying on the couch. And I kept commenting to her, I said, boy, it's getting awfully hot in here. So I went over and checked the stove. We had a cast iron pot-bellied stove and it was barely going. And I looked out in the kitchen and the ceiling was on fire. So I ran outside to get a bucket of water, had to draw it up out of the well, came back in. My mother was standing in the kitchen. She said, we got to get Charles. My brother Charles was in the back room. So I threw the bucket of water up in the air and it came down on my mother's head and her hair was beginning to singe and so i told her to get out i would go get charles so i crawled on my hands and knees through the living room and by that time the fire was in there and went to the back side of the house where the bedrooms were got charles out of bed and went out the front door you know he was the only one other one at home my dad was down at the barn working so he came running up and there wasn't anything we could do there wasn't a fire department anywhere near so, we began to listen in 1957 to the broadcasts, and I used to listen, or my mother and I and would listen to the University of Kentucky basketball games on WHAS 840 out of Louisville, Kentucky, and the World Tomorrow broadcast would fade in and drown it out. So we started listening to that and became interested in it.
0: So you, that, that's how you came into contact with with uh, one station superseding another on the same frequency.
1: Precisely. And, and I started reading in the Plain Truth about Ambassador College. So I decided I would like to go there. It was almost a compunction. It was like I was urged to go there. <laughs> I, I felt that. And... I applied for college, graduating in 59 and applied for ambassador college was accepted. And my dad was working for Southern Railroad and he thought he had a ticket paid for me to ride the train all the way from Chattanooga to LA. Uh, That summer I had wrecked the family car. And so dad had taken all the money I was saving up for college. Which wasn't much, but it helped with the down payment on a car. And he he went on for me to go to college. I had to go out and borrow three hundred dollars. So halfway between Memphis and Oklahoma, our Little Rock conductor came by and he said my ticket wasn't good, uh, except the Memphis, and I had to pay half fare when I got off at Little Rock, and I had to pay from Little Rock to Oklahoma City. When I got to Oklahoma City, I had to pay a ticket from there to L.A. So I arrived at Ambassador College with $5. (laughs) So they accepted me, and there I was.
0: When did you graduate, and and, uh, was it four years that you went, and then how did you begin your career? Did you start right away in the ministry?
1: I graduated in 1963. Uh, Norma McCallan and I met at Ambassador College. We got married on that time at Pentecost. And we were given a car and had 10 days to get to Pittsburgh. That was my first assignment. As a ministerial training couple and served under Bill McDowell, he had Pittsburgh, Akron and Toledo is a three-church circuit. We never did go to Toledo, but we went almost every Sabbath over to Akron. And Pittsburgh. We also had Bible studies in Wheeling, Charleston, West Virginia, Columbus, Ohio and Toronto, Canada. Now Bill McDowell basically took Toronto, Canada and Occasionally Columbus, we both would go there occasionally. I basically took the Wheeling and Charleston Bible studies. And those later became my first church circuit. So we were two years in Pittsburgh and then transferred to Wheeling. And then church started about a year afterwards in Charleston. So we had that as a two church circuit and a Bible study in Bluefield.
0: How many times uh, then did you and your family move? You, know, you started there, and uh, when were you ordained, and, and uh, how did your career progress?
1: Okay, I was ordained in 1964. At that time as a, what they call, the, uh, local elder. That was on the day of Pentecost. And then at the Feast of Tabernacles at... Ball, I was ordained as a preaching elf, mm-hmm. started pastoring in 1965. I was 24 years old. Norma was 23 and we're pastoring churches. You know, at that time I had the Charleston Church and when it first started there was nobody in the congregation who knew anything about song leading. Hardly anybody had ever given an opening or closing prayer. So when it came to services I would normally Give the opening prayer. I would lead songs, and then if there was a sermonette or something I wanted to cover that way, I would cover it, and I gave the sermon. Many times I had close services with prayer, so it took a while for us to get a piano player. This was all a cappella. I knew I would start out okay, listening here ah, and you and I would try to get a key which I knew nothing about. But today I'm in the Chattanooga area. And we've got, in Chattanooga, eight to 10 men, most of them young adults, who give sermons. We've got a multitude of men who lead songs and give sermonettes. And they are doing a wonderful job. So things have progressed over the years.
0: I know that it's very satisfying if we've been around you know a while and I still think of my first assignments you know 52 years ago and I remember little children in the congregation now they've become parents and their children have come to (laughs) Ambassador Bible College. I mean it's just uh, very satisfying to see that in in some of the cases that we've seen where uh, we know the families and they go back a long ways and even though we've been small Uh, We have had very, very strong bonds and very strong ties with our people, especially if we've been pastoring in different locations around the country. Uh, We we get to know actually a fair percentage of the people in in the entire church, I feel. Roy, what was your most uh, memorable experience as as a pastor?
1: I would say helping uh, churches or areas where they have had a crisis or problems and going and Stepping in and helping them to become stabilized. You know, there's nothing greater than God's people, and to be called to the ministry is a a tremendous blessing. To be able to serve and help God's people is, is a tremendous blessing. Mm-hmm. Even though we started out very young, I found that the people still respected us because they were looking for someone who would come, who would teach them God's way, and that they could talk to, that they could share their problems or they could ask questions of. I remember one woman in particular had a whole notebook full of questions. And a lot of times we have people who will write in and say, well, we've got all these questions we want answered. Well, she did. I mean, she literally had hundreds of pages of questions. (laughs) It's, It's amazing. Back at that time, when we first came out, there were over 90 letters of prospective members. And Mr. McDowell was just covered with work. And he asked me to start visiting them, but we decided we'd do something a little different both of us had been on nationwide baptizing tours. So we decided we would take a baptizing tour up north, up through here in Oil City, Pennsylvania, which we did over a period of two weeks. We just stayed out for five days in the week and we baptized a few of them, most of them. We just invited the church so that they could Learn more about the church and learn more about God's way. So, in a period of two weeks, we saw all 90 of those individuals. Thereafter, we tried to stay up as the letters came in.
0: Well, I recall very, very distinctly when I began in my career, which was 1969, several years after yours, about seven, six, seven years after you did, is that so much of our work was all tied to visiting and we were asked to in fact it was absolute necessity to visit with people and so many of the people were people asking for the first time about information about the church or they were asking for baptism we had so many of these and i recall even where i started in the dakotas in southern minnesota we would have up to five to ten letters a week and you know just week after week after week of people who were requesting asking about baptism and And, you know, we're very concerned about their lives and their future. And I found that to be a very, very satisfying part. And that has somewhat changed as less and less people have asked those types of questions.
1: Right. In fact, we were required to get 20 visits a week. Mm -hmm. And I can remember Charleston was a four-hour drive from Wheeling. So anytime I'd go to Charleston have a Bible study or a spokesman's club, or go visit. I wouldn't get home until one or two o'clock in the morning. I'd come home and all of the boys were in bed. Norma would be waiting up for me. Many times she would have changed the furniture in the living room and I'd come in. And I'd stumble over something. <laughs> I got to looking when I would come in to make sure, turn the light on and make sure that everything was where it was when I left. There were weeks actually I would go where I would not see the boys except on the weekends, on the Sabbath. And so that put a strain there on our relationships. So I tried to spend as much time as possible with them whenever the occasion arose. So thankfully on the weekends, we had youth activities. We had the Sabbath and our boys always went on the Sabbath with us. So you can imagine getting up in the morning, having four or five boys getting them dressed, <laughs> taking baths and getting ready, making lunches, eating breakfast, and out the door you go.
0: I still recall seeing you and your family at the Feast of Tabernacles in the Wisconsin Dells when you were pastor in Chicago, I think, and I remember Watching your family with all the boys around the table and the restaurants and so forth—it was just always such a wonderful example of how <laughs> well-behaved everybody was, you know. And and uh, it was just very nice to see your family. I know that uh, pastoral life can be very very hard uh, on a pa- on a pastor and his wife and his children. Like you said, you were gone evenings, you know, over and over again, and we didn't have time. I still recall the same you know, in my life, even though I only had one child, you know, at home. And, you know, it's, it's uh, something which really does test the ministry and uh, leaves marks sometimes that are not pleasant, but it was a sacrifice and it was something that we did because we felt like we had to do it, you know, for the work's sake, for the congregation's sake. Right. right. What did you uh, find the most satisfaction in, in your ministry? Was it teaching, preaching, caring for congregations, Uh, I know that uh, in working with you, you know, as I did, I I was always admired how you were very systematic in whatever you explained. You know, you were always very, very clear and had a lot of scriptural backup. And I know know of you as being a very, very uh, competent teacher, but what what did you enjoy most, you know, in the pastoral work? Was it teaching, preaching, caring for people, visiting? Uh, What did you find most satisfying? I would have
1: to say it's probably teaching and preaching from the point of view of you have the whole congregation there and you're able to reach all of them at the same time. I always tried to speak, if there was a brand new person there who would never heard a sermon before and if it was somebody who had heard this sermon or this topic spoken on for a dozen times, I tried to appeal to all of them I tried to give additional information for those who were around for a long time and explain in a basic way for those who are there new. So that's not always easy to do, but uh, that's what I was striving to do. So I really enjoyed that. Now, since I had a stroke five years ago, it's been about three years since I've actually spoken. And It's something that I do miss. Maybe one of these days I'll have the opportunity. I find that today I spend quite a bit of time just studying and praying and reading, doing things that I felt I needed to do more often when I was active in the ministry. Mm -hmm. Prayed and studied, and I read, but not as much as I really wanted to, but of course you were divided, you had all kinds of extra duties that you were doing. Well, it's, it's
0: amazing in the ministry, you know, when you get very committed to, to your work uh, as to how many things you have to balance and how many things you have to prioritize. And sometimes if you're a person who likes doing things, you, you don't prioritize as well. You just do everything that comes at you and something has to give. I think it's a very important lesson. Maybe as we pass on to others who follow us, is the importance of having these things straight. Otherwise, a person's life can become upended, you know. And, and when they don't have a re- restoring or refueling of the spirit of God in their life,
1: that is absolutely true. Uh, in fact, when United first started, I was on the council. I did a survey of the southeast region of the ministers there on how much they worked every week. And I found that every one of them said that they worked 70 plus hours a week. So the ministry, some people might think the ministers don't do anything, but working 70 hours a week now, that included sermon preparation, as well as visiting clubs and all the different kinds of activities. I can remember when we first started, I had three churches. I was a regional pastor and a feast coordinator. I was also on the council, and I was in charge of the moving committee when we first decided to move from Pasadena to Cincinnati. I was in charge of that, and I worked three hours a week. So when you have all those duties pulling you, uh, it's hard to concentrate on what you think you need to do, which is really get out and visit and take care of the congregation as much as you'd like to, because you've got all of these other responsibilities.
0: Well, I know that when we started in our ministry, everything was revolved around visiting pretty much, except for midweek Bible studies or some other church function. And uh, then know we had more jobs piled onto us administering a festival site or running a camp or or you know if you were on the council of elders you know duties that were involved there i remember so well when you were i believe the chairman of the ad hoc committee for moving from you mentioned pasadena i think it was arcadia (laughs) that we were moving from to uh cincinnati and or just wherever you know and and you did such a tremendous study on it i was on that committee but i didn't do anywhere near the work. That you did, and you had it so well organized, and uh, I, I I would just I marvel this to how you put all that information together, which created quite a case for actually being here in Cincinnati as we are now.
1: You know that was was a lot of work, but you know that that type of thing I think we've learned over the years. I mean, we still have our men doing additional jobs, but if if there's one lesson that I could pass on, and that is uh, that you know if a man is a pastor, you know that needs to be his main focus. We don't need to pile a lot of duties on the men. You know when I was the operation manager for ministerial services, one of the things that I tried to do was to make sure that the men were not being overburdened, because having gone through all of that myself, I knew what it was. That they needed time for their marriages, they needed time for their family, and for the congregations that they were pastoring.
0: Well, I think that uh, Roy, unfortunately, I think some men are doing more, and and above that, I still feel like the seventy-hour week is there, and I just wish that uh, we could have more shepherds or we had more laborers to go out into the field. And, and I do agree with you; it'd be good if we could take the hats off of our head. You know, instead of wearing three, four, or five or more hats of different jobs, but to just to have, like I'm a pastor and that is my job, I care for people. In the book of Philippians, it speaks about the various jobs, you know, they're pastors, they're teachers, there's, you know, those who are evangelists and, and, and those, you know, who are administrators. And, and uh, that would be the ultimate ideal, but it's not always the case. Right. Roy, we have gone through some fiery trials in our uh, ministerial career. And I have gone through them with you and actually under your direction. You know, I feel like you have mentored me and I have followed you. But you, I'm sure, have ingrained in you some of the trauma from the fiery trials in our ministerial careers that we've shared together. Can you please share a story from one of them and how you handled it?
1: I think I can. Back in 1974 as an example, there was a small... A uh, group that left on the East Coast. And we were transferred from San Antonio to Richmond, Norfolk to pastor the church there. The church pastor took about 350 400 members out of the church. And I can remember very vividly when we first got to Richmond, the first time we saw the people was pass overnight. We walked in the room and I. Introduce myself. Well, the women just who were there flocked around my wife, and they were so uh, traumatized that they—they they all came up, they touched her, they held her skirt, held on to her blouse. I'm talking about the ladies, and they just wanted to be around people who were converted and truly wanted to obey God. And so they just showed their affection and their attention and their love. And there on I had an associate who was still there, and we wanted to strengthen the church. So we made, it, made up our minds that we would have an in-home Bible study every night, which we did for two or three weeks. And We covered both church areas, everybody who was still attending. And those who had left were even invited to attend if they wanted to. And any questions that they had, we would answer. And we basically gave a Bible study dealing with God's in charge, you know, he's running the church and covered that at that time. And same thing happened in Chicago in 1980, 82. I gathered all the elders together. Thankfully, we had a number of elders. And so each one of us went out at least once a week and held a Bible study, a home Bible study. We got everybody in it together and we talked to them. We held a Bible study. Much the same thing as I did in Richmond in Norfolk. And in Fort Myers, 1995, which many will remember when the church went through its trauma at that time. I got a call telling me that I had been removed from pastoring the churches, was no longer a regional pastor. And so I knew that I was basically put out of the church at that time. So Norma and I had decided we were going to sit down We were in Fort Myers Beach for a week. We lived very close to the water, but we had spent very little time down there. And then we were gonna go look for a job. We didn't know what we were going to do. We laughed at each other and said, well, we'll go to McDonald's or we'll be a greeter at Walmart, whatever, (laughs) whatever flying we'll do. So we never made it to the beach because almost immediately the phone began to ring and I had members that we had pastored before, many of them from Chicago, from all over, who began to call me. They wanted to know what was going on. They knew me, they knew that I was not a rabble rouser. And so consequently, they wanted to know what had happened and what was going on in the church. So I sat there for two weeks and I hardly ever got out of the office. And Norma would bring food in to me. I'd eat breakfast there, and I'd eat lunch there, and I'd eat dinner there. And she'd bring me water in to drink. And I would sit there on the phone all day talking to people. And a lot of times while I was talking to one person, somebody else called and left a message. So I would call those people back. And so over a period of two weeks, I, I had hundreds of phone calls from people. They just wanted to know what was happening, what was going on in the church. And so it gave me an opportunity to let them know what was going on. And so I, I took advantage of that and we weathered the storm.
0: But it sounds like the weathering the storm was <clears throat> spending a lot of time with people and probably more than anything, sending a message that you cared for them, that you sympathized with them, and that uh, you were there to help them, and that they were not abandoned.
1: Right. I think many of them did feel abandoned. The same in 2010, when there were a number of church pastors who were no longer in United, and for about three months, I had to provide speakers or their churches. Now, I was still pastoring Chattanooga and Rome at the time. So what I would do is on Sunday or Monday, I would drive to Cincinnati. Thursday night or Friday, I would drive back to Rome. I mean, back to Chattanooga. And I'd run the circuit on the Sabbath, And then I would go back to Cincinnati. And I would stay there for the rest of the week did that for about three months. And then finally I was appointed operation manager for ministerial services. And we moved to Cincinnati. And I I prized that time because we had the opportunity to get closer to the ministry and to be able to visit a lot of churches. Norma and I really appreciated that.
0: This is really wonderful to hear this. You know, when we went to Ambassador College and in our ministerial training in our early twenties, you know, we had a lot of ideals and a lot of aspirations, and you know, things were going to be really growing and be much bigger, and and great things would be accomplished. But it's not always been that way. You know, we have gone through severe trials upon us as a church, severe trials upon our faith, and you know, it's a it's an experience that some have just not survived, but. Write, give us some lessons of faith and character that we could learn from the things that have happened, but more importantly, maybe you could share with others here of uh, how to handle some of the trials that go through when you feel like you are so overwhelmed, you don't know what to do, you don't even know how to think or even pray. You know, What have you learned and how have you come to terms with some of these crises when you are a leader?
1: First of all, you have to be be a leader you've got to be one who trains and teaches people i remember in 95 in Fort myers we would go out on the sabbath we had been told not to go to church we would go out on the sabbath and eat lunch and one sabbath we ran into a group of about 30 members who were no longer attending and they asked me to pastor them and I told them that I I would speak to them, look after them but I would not take tithes and offerings. They had to find a, a hall and they had to pay for it among themselves and I would come there every Sabbath. And so what I found is that I gave two basic sermons, basic doctrines every Sabbath and grounded all those people. Pretty soon, we had people coming down from St. Pete, and Tampa, and all over to attend with us and to keep the Passover that year.
0: I know that they felt uh, abandoned, and you know, the Bible does talk about the sheep. You know, as, as symbolic of, of members, and when their leader. where where the leaders are quarreling, it's very, very upsetting to them. And you have set such a good example of caring for people who have been wounded, you know, in that way. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us at this point as we wind up our podcast?
1: I I think we need to realize that the age of miracles have not ended yet. That God still intervenes on the behalf of His people sometime because we receive so many prayer requests from all over the world. You know, now anybody who's sick, we hear about it. And it makes us think that, well, I wonder if God's going to heal anyone, but that's not true. And God protects his people. He blesses them. My wife, Norma came from a very strong family. They were keeping the Sabbath back in the early forties. Norma's father, was driving out one night, he was hired in the ministry at this time, and he was came down a road with a car its lights on bright, and it blinded him, and he went right by it, without realizing he was on a T road, that that road teed into another one, and that he was in the middle of the intersection of the other road, by the time he could see what was going on. The road was only 30 feet wide, and all at once something grabbed the wheel and turned it he said he didn't it just took it from his hands and turned it and in a space of 15 to 18 feet that car turned and went down the road obviously god protected them from nothing but a bank in front of them and there could have been another car coming but they were protected from it How often have we in the ministry known that God has protected us while we were out visiting? I think I've gone somewhere close to probably 2 million miles I've driven in the ministry. And I've never had a wreck, never had anything of that nature take place. Mm -hmm. And I think God has protected us and blessed us. Just to give you another illustration, her dad one day, he had a ministerial trainee in the Memphis area, who he was taking out visiting and his car's battery would not start. So he had the hood up and had his head, he was looking under the hood at the battery and he asked his the trainee to bring his car around, he was gonna jump the battery. Well, the trainee had not driven on ice or snow before. So he came roaring up there, started sliding, would have slid right into Mr. Cowan and broken his knees, except right before the two cars smacked together, something picked him up and threw him out of the way. And the other car hit his, but he was protected. He did a job. He didn't even know it was taking place. Mm -hmm. There are many miracles that take place. I, I think you could talk to almost any minister and he could tell you about how God has intervened to protect him or someone in his family.
0: Roy, it's just been really wonderful talking to you today. It's just been very, very enjoyable. And I'm sure that those listening will appreciate hearing the things that we talked about today.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a privilege to talk with you and I appreciate you
0: taking the time. It's, it's my pleasure. and It is my privilege to be able to talk to you. So I want to thank everybody here for joining us on Inside United. Be sure to tell your friends about Inside United. You can find us on the homepage of ucg.org. Go to the main menu bar and click on podcast. But also you can find us on your favorite iOS, Apple, or Android podcasting app. We're also available on Spotify. We'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at podcast at ucg.org, podcast at ucg.org with any questions or comments. So have a great week. See you again soon. This is a production of the United Church of God. For more, visit ucg.org.
1: Thank you